0: Read this up there. Don't worry about it. I'm going to repeat all that uh, uh, verbally, so it's not important. I guess it's there more for my memory than it is for your benefit. Uh, uh, but at any rate, a lot of people wonder how I got into the subject of sexual dysfunction, and the uh, the, re- the answer is obvious um, because uh, <laughs> uh, for the same reason I got into the subject of alcoholism, and and uh, one of the one of the uh, things that. Uh, Uh, that occurred to me when I stopped drinking is, a couple of months later, I developed what could be called a semblance of a normal sex life, uh, which I had never had before in my whole lifetime, and so when I started working in the field of alcoholism, I started promising everybody that their sex life would uh, get terrific and normal, and that happened for most of them, but a few of them didn't, and so I thought I should look into it a little bit more, and I did sign up for various sex uh, therapy clinics around the country and seminars, including Masters and Johnsons in St. Louis, and so that's the uh, type of thing that I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, Now, I'm not going to bore you with my own sex uh, life, uh, although I'm not so sure it would be boring, but... and I, so I'm not really going to tell you what it's what it was like and what happened and, <laughs> and what it's like now, uh, but I will tell you uh, one thing that uh, last year for my birthday, my wife bought me a T-shirt, you know, I got a lot of teenage kids around home and T-shirts are the craze and she bought me one last year for my 50th birthday and it said... Uh, I I may not be perfect, but parts of me are excellent. Um, (laughs) And this year, the nursing staff at Brighton Hospital bought me one to match it, and it says on their sex instructor, first lesson free. (laughs) So... Uh, it seems like this reputation is spreading, but it's, uh, I think it's a very important subject because it's one of the things that you can uh, that you can promise a recovering alcoholic that's positive. I mean, it's one of the best reasons I can think of to stay sober uh, is getting back a happy and successful uh, sex life. So what we're going to talk about, though, uh, is sexual dysfunction and how alcohol prevents us from enjoying our our sex life. And basically. Uh, it's not surprising that alcohol should uh, should uh, have certain symbolisms as far as our sex life is concerned, because it's also it's always had a reputation of being an aphrodisiac, you know, making sex life better. And as a matter of fact, some of the recent uh, s- uh, research coming out of Masters and Johnson's has shown that indeed two ounces of alcohol uh, does increase the male hormone level in both sexes, so small quantities does act as an actual aphrodisiac. So there's some basis for sayings like Agnanesh that candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker, you know. There's some basis for that, but except Shakespeare said many, many uh, hundreds of years ago that alcohol provokes the desire but it dampens the performance. And uh, this is what actually happens with us alcoholics, is that our sex life uh, becomes literally impossible uh, once we increase the alcohol intake above a couple of ounces for a very long period of time. And, and, that, and then once you increase the alcohol above a few ounces, the testosterone level, instead of going up, goes down and has that effect that Shakespeare uh, noted. Uh, as I said, alcohol has this reputation of being a sign of virility, at least to the male. And the average male coming into a treatment center doesn't mind saying that he drinks a pint or a fifth of the liquor a day. What he don't want to admit to is that it gives him any loss of control. Well, the opposite is sort of true of the female. You know, ever since uh, Victorian times, the, the female is supposed to not admit that she enjoys participating in sex. She's supposed to endure but not enjoy. You know, Queen Victoria admonished her da- her daughters on their wedding night. Uh, she said to them, uh, Don't worry about it. Just close your eyes and think of England. Uh, uh, well, that uh, that was the attitude of sex for many years so the female was not supposed to admit that she enjoys sex well alcohol made a convenient excuse for them because they could always say the female could always say well it wasn't my fault he got me drunk you know well that sort of makes an ideal situation if you stop and think about it because a man and a woman can sit around the same table drinking out of the same bottle That bottle being a sign of virility to the male, and they sign a loss of control to the female. It sort of makes the prey a better prey, the predator a better predator, and there's no doubt that alcohol is always going to be very successful in our social sexual lives, unless, of course, you become an alcoholic, and then the opposite of that comes true. When I first started putting this talk together, and I give this a talk similar to this to patients at uh, Brighton Hospital, I thought I would say anybody not having any problem with this subject could get up and leave, but I realized right away that would be a mistake, because all the guys would want to impress the gals that they didn't have any problem they'd leave, so I didn't think that was a very good idea, and I thought I'd say anybody not having any interest in this subject could get up and leave, but I knew that would be a mistake, too, because all the gals would want to impress the guys that they didn't have any interest, so... I thought I'd better not say that, and actually the reason I make that comparison is because I wanted to see how much double standard there is, you know, whether they really believe that or not, and so uh, I would take it from the response there that there is, that uh, the people in this room have agreed uh, that sex is something that's okay for both parties and it's all right to to talk about it and and that's what I intend to do uh, right now and and, uh, uh, that always brings me uh, to a little story it reminds me of a story that I usually tell about women enjoying sex and it's about a couple of female uh, females who own this pharmacist and they worked alone in this pharmacist in in pharmacy and one day a man came in to be waited on he looked around saw only these two women working in there and so he thought he'd go out and go someplace else, and he started to uh, walk out, and one of the ladies went up to him and said, can I help you, sir? And he said, well, he said, I'd rather have a man wait on me if you don't mind, and she said, well, we're both pharmacists, my sister and I, we work alone in this drugstore, but I'm sure we'll understand your problem and be able to help you if you tell us what it is, and he said, well, okay, he said, do you have anything for a permanent erection? She looked at him and said, well, I think we can help you there, sir, but I'd rather talk it over with my sister if you don't mind. So she went and talked to her sister, and she came back, and she smiled at him real nice, and she said, "How about 5,000 dollars and half interest in the store?" <laughs> So uh, with that in mind, we'll uh, now talk about sexual dysfunction. And for the most part, I, I have a habit a lot of times of talking about the guy and, and he and that. And I want you to know that with very few exceptions, everything that happens to the male as far as impotence happens to the female as far as sexual dysfunction. So when I, if I make that error, uh, please uh, bear in mind that I am talking about both sexes and where I am separating them. Uh, I definitely will discuss that. But what we're going to talk about is sexual dysfunction, of which there are two types, primary sexual dysfunction and secondary sexual dysfunction. Primary sexual dysfunction is defined as that type of sexual dysfunction where that person has never been able to function normally sexually in their whole lifetime. This, indeed, is very rare and uh, probably almost non-existence nonexistent among, uh, among alcoholics. So you'd think I could go right on to the second type, which is very common among alcoholics, but there's something to be gained from the fact that uh, something is rare, because, after all, if something is rare, that almost always means that the opposite of that is common or normal. And that's the point I want to make right now. Sex is a common, normal function, and it's something that starts at birth and ends at death. And the reason that's important, because any alcoholic who has problems with his sex life, if it happens to come on when he's 45, 55, or 65 like that, he may think it's his age that's, or she that's his, that is causing the problem and will not realize it's the alcohol, and therefore it won't have a tendency, it won't have any desire to do anything about it. And so it's important to convince everybody who has a sexual dysfunction that sex is a normal function and it doesn't stop at any particular age. Masters and, uh, himself was a gynecologist and an uh, obstetrician before he was a sex therapist, and he used to t- uh, tell the story about how he would get bored delivering babies in the middle of the night time, and he'd make a bet with himself whether he'd get the cord tied on newborn baby boys before they had an erection. And he lost 50% of the time. So uh, uh, sex then uh, can start very, very early, and it can go on until death, and it doesn't stop at 45, 55, or any age like that. When I was down at Masters and Johnson's uh, in St. Louis, the oldest couple they had in treatment down there was a man who was 86 years of age And he was in treatment with his spouse, who was 94 years of age. Uh, uh, And I might say categorically that they were indeed successfully rehabilitated. So uh, age has nothing to do about it. I heard recently somebody compare sex after 55 with the new speed limit. You know, they say sex after 55 is like the new speed limit because it may take you longer to get there, but you've got a lot of gas left over after you arrive. I think that's a pretty good analogy, and it's another way of saying that the quantity uh, may decrease a little bit, but the quality uh, improves enough to make up for it, so nobody is uh, suffering a great deal. Another analogy to sex in the elderly that I thought was especially apropos is uh, what Alex Comfort uh, talked about in his book, Joy of Sex and More of the Joy of Sex, which, incidentally, I think is, are two excellent textbooks for people uh, who have problems with sexual dysfunction and communication because uh, they're well-illustrated uh, books on, on sexual techniques. But anyhow, Alex Comfort in that, uh, those two books uh, says the sex uh, uh, elderly people stop having sex for the same three reasons they stop riding a bicycle. Number one, because they think it looks silly. Number two, because they are in poor physical health. Or number three, because they don't have a bicycle. (laughs) And I... And... I do indeed think that's an excellent analogy. Um, uh, the second type of sexual dysfunction is, uh, is called secondary sexual dysfunction, and that's uh, a type of sexual dysfunction that comes on later in your lifetime uh, after a period of functioning normally or pretty good anyhow. Uh, and uh, when I was in medical school, they talked about secondary sexual dysfunctions as caused by such things as aneurysms of the aorta, uh prostate gland disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, diabetes mellitus, and things like that. Well, those things, of course, still do cause secondary sexual dysfunction, but now we realize they make up a very small percentage, maybe 10% or less, of the secondary sexual dysfunctions in the country, and the vast majority, probably 80 or 90%, are caused by alcohol and other drugs. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I've written up on the board here the five different ways alcohol and other drugs interfere with uh, sexual function. The first is intrapsychic. The second is state-dependent learning. The third is organic. The fourth is functional. And the fifth is a specific type that I'll talk of when I get there, which means that uh, it's uh, a dysfunction with one person where the person may be able to function with other uh, people, strangers, and so forth. So let's talk about those one at a time. And the intrapsychic sexual dysfunction really refers to uh, hang-ups that a lot of us have through our developmental years. Freud has a lot of terms for for them, you know, like uh, uh, homosexual panic and penis envy, castration complex, Oedipus complex, those fancy words, simply meaning that during our developmental years and our adolescent years, we have some fears about our sexual identity uh, and uh, our abilities uh, that makes us worry a little bit about our ability to have sex and that usually will go on to a minor or greater degree depending on the individual until the opportunity for sex arises and it's successful and then we don't have any problem with it anymore and those fears are laid to rest, right? Except of course if you become an alcoholic or a drug addict and at a later time in your life find that you're not able to perform sexually, there can be a rebirth of those hang-ups that you ha- or fears that you had during your developmental years, and you begin to wonder what's wrong with you and why, uh, is there something wrong with my identity, uh, identity? Is there something basically underlying wrong with my uh, my psyche that I'm having these problems? And you know what a lot of people do in situations like this. They start reading all the textbooks and dictionaries and all things like that, and they... uh, They read about words like latent and overt, and they read about things like uh, homosexuals and bisexuals and heterosexuals and pansexuals and trisexuals and all those things like that. Uh, If you want to know what a trisexual is, by the way, that's somebody who will try anything. Uh, uh, they read about all these things and they wonder could I be one of those people you know and and, uh, uh, so uh, this this sets up a a form of fear of performance and they wonder whether there's something underlying uh, wrong with them well the most common uh, females and males have two different uh, situations here because the male uh, usually has uh, more fears of performance than the female because he has realized for a long period of time that one of the basic differences between the male and the female is he has to have the desire to have sex before he has the ability to have sex, right? So what he, uh, when he finds himself unable to perform sometime, uh, he uh, begins to wonder whether uh, he is a homosexual a lot of times. You know, back when he, that was a worry for a lot of boys when they were in their teen years and that because, you know, back then uh, they heard some words out behind the barn and that, like uh, fag and queer, and they were swear words, at least they were used as swear words, and they wondered whether uh, they feared uh, they didn't know what the words meant, but they knew they weren't very nice. Then they got to their adolescent years And they realized they had to have, the difference between a boy and a girl was the boys had to have the desire before they had the ability and they knew about this homosexual thing and so they wondered uh, could could they be and then that all was laid to rest when they had their opportunity for their, their first sexual experience and found indeed they were heterosexual and that was no problem. But when they became uh, alcoholics and they found their sex life uh, was unsuccessful and even a lot of times they even got to hate females because of the, all the all the hostility and aggression that goes with an alcoholic marriage, you know, sometimes not only did they weren't able to perform but they actually got a strong hate for the opposite sex. Uh, uh, then the, the idea of make, being a homosexual became even more uh, 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 important in their thoughts, you know, and as a matter of fact, if any of you around 20 years ago and knew anything about and read any psychiatric textbook that time, you'll remember that all the psychiatrists at that time uh, thought that all alcoholics were homosexuals, males and females. And uh, this, if you, uh, uh, this of course, that was a misinterpretation. Now we know that this, they aren't uh, homosexuals. But at that time, the psychiatrists thought they were because they knew that most alcoholics had impotence or non- or, and were non-orgasmic, and they misinterpreted that to mean that they were, that they were uh, homosexual. This is what's called homosexual panic, uh, and uh, uh, th- this happens to a lot of alcoholics, especially male alcoholics. If they find themselves unable to perform, sometime, there can be a rebirth of this uh, situation uh, or this, these thoughts uh, a second type of thing that applies to the males and I'm going to get to the females in a minute because the interpsychic hangups I'm talking about right now do ver- differ from the male and the female uh, for the reasons I've just stated se- a second type of hangup that occurs in males that usually doesn't occur, of course occur in females is the castration complex there. Uh, and you know every male has an image of himself of what it is to be a father and a, a, a husband and a male and all those things and it usually means he has a job and he supports his family and he disciplines his kids and all that sort of thing well any alcoholic that uh, gets into trouble with alcoholism soon finds that he is not living up to his own image of what a male a husband and a father is uh, and so he feels castrated. And if you feel castrated, of course, uh, if you uh, act like you're castrated and you become unable to perform. The situation with the female as far as interpsychic hang-ups are slightly different. Uh, uh, because in the first place, those words, swear words about um, uh, uh, homosexuals, are not going around in their peer groups in, in childhood. Secondly, females always have the ability to perform, even if they don't have the desire. Uh, but the society has laid a couple of problems on the female, just as serious uh, as those that I've mentioned on the male. And one of these is the virgin whore concept. The idea that when a virgin gets married, she's when a, a woman gets married, she's supposed to be a virgin. If she isn't, she's a whore or something like that that. Well, this creates somewhat of a, a problem in a lot of females, or at least it used to, they say, and that's uh, going back to that uh, that uh, advice of, of Queen Victoria to their daughters, uh, but I'm not so sure that this is as important as it was, was once made up to be. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm not so sure it ever was important, frankly, because I happen to live in Ann Arbor and Outside of the Natural Science Museum at the university there, there's a couple of great big bronze lions that guard the door there, you know, and legend has it in Ann Arbor that every time a virgin goes by, those lions roar. (laughs) Well, I've lived in Ann Arbor now, off and on, uh, for over 20 years, and I want you to know that I've never heard those lions roar yet. Um, And uh, And I understand they've been standing there for some 90-plus years, and I doubt very much whether anybody has ever heard those lions roar, so I'm not so sure the virgin whore concept ever was really important, you know. However, I do have to be perfectly honest with you, because a, a year or so ago I told that legend at Brighton Hospital, and there was a man there, a patient who was from Ann Arbor, and he came up to me after the talk and he said, Doc, apparently you haven't heard the other side of that legend. I says, no, I guess I haven't. What is it? And he says, well, the only men who can hear those lions roar are the men that have been faithful to their spouses, for whatever that's <laughs> But but society has laid a problem on the female that indeed uh, is especially serious for the female alcoholic. And that's the concept that uh, she will uh, uh, meet a man someday, marry him, and live happily ever after. This is sometimes called the someday my prince will come theory. No pun intended. Uh, the, The idea that... Someday some man will come and kiss her on the cheek And she will live happily ever after Create somewhat of a problem for the alcoholic female uh, Because she's been raised, in other words To believe that if she ever has a problem After she gets married It's his fault, not her fault Well, that's a problem because it really, in most cases, isn't his fault, it's alcohol's fault, and she's been raised to believe otherwise, so it's very, very hard for her to, to see the alcohol as the problem. And the end result of this is the alcoholic female uh, it becomes very, very depressed, because after all, if you've got a problem that you think is caused by somebody else, that means you can't do anything about it, and why not get depressed about it? That's one advantage the male, I guess, has, if you stop and think about it, because if he uh, becomes impotent, if he can't get it up, he may not know what the problem is, but least he knows it's with him you know and the female when she quits enjoying her sex life when she becomes non-orgasmic uh, the way she's been raised is she is prone to see uh, her uh, this is caused by her spouse and, the, and so 90% of the females uh, I think for this reason become depressed uh, and are harder to get to treatment uh, for that reason some, and are harder to treat on, in some cases. And this is verified, of course, by the statistics on depression, which shows that 90 per, uh, 60% of all the suicides in this country are performed by alcoholics, and 60% of all the suicides by alcoholics are performed by females. So uh, while the general population, males, are more successful in committing suicide than females, in the alcoholic population, females are more successful in committing suicide than, than are males. The other 10% do the obvious thing. They go out and look for another prince, um, and that's usually called a barfly. Uh, but that isn't very successful either, because the problem is not with the prince. The prince may have a lot of problems, but that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Uh, and uh, so looking for another prince is not going to solve uh, this problem. Treating the alcoholism is. So those are, those are examples of, of uh, interpsychic hang-ups that I have found uh, important uh, in treating alcoholics. The second group I have up there is called state-dependent learning. And this uh, is a phenomenon that's been shown in the research laboratory, and it was brought out to me uh, clearly uh, by David Smith, who uh, runs the Haight-Ashbury uh, Clinic in, in San Francisco. And David Sli- Smith pointed this out, that the young drug culture kids especially are suffering from state-dependent learning. And that uh, state-dependent learning simply means that uh, you, learn, uh, you remember things you learn sober better when you're sober, and you remember things you learn drunk Better when you're drunk. In other words, if you take some mice and or rats and treat them how to go, through, teach them how to go through a maze when they're drinking and sober them up, they won't know how to go through there very well until you give them something to drink again. Then they'll remember how. Right-versa, if you teach them how to go through through there sober and give them something to drink, they won't remember how to get there through there unless you sober them up and then they will. Well, well, this happens to drug culture kids especially because they have started on drugs, many of them, when they were 12 years of age and so forth, so they've absolutely never have had a sexual experience uh, sober. And as a result of this, they are suffering from state-dependent learning and they feel that they can't uh, have sex unless they're under the influence of drugs. And to a certain extent, they're right. They have to stay sober long enough and, and relearn some of uh, uh, correction, learn some of those things that they learned while drinking. Have to learn them sober, uh, and then they th- then they would be able to function. So uh, there's a group of people out there who absolutely swear to the fact that they can't have sex uh, sober, uh, and to some extent they're right. But they just don't, they don't understand this mechanism, and it's a matter simply a matter of learning. I remember once there was a doctor at Brighton Hospital a number of years ago, who, after he heard this, told me about an incident he had, and he had come to Ann Arbor for a postgraduate course, and he was at a bar, and he was drinking heavy and got drunk, and he met this uh, uh, female in the bar, and and he thought that they would uh, get to know each other better if they went out to her trailer, Uh, uh, which they did and he apparently had a lovely time that night and he promised her the next night he'd be back only the next night he couldn't remember where she lived he went back and forth out Liberty Street and he couldn't find where it was at all so he was rather disappointed and thought well that was too bad so a couple years later he went back to Ann Arbor for another postgraduate course and he went back to the same bar and he got drunk again and all of a sudden he remembered where she lived and so he leaves the bar and gets in his car and drives out Liberty Street right to her uh, trailer uh, the only thing is uh, she had moved since, and so it uh, didn 't do him any good. but this is an example of state dependent learning uh, where a person where you remember things better sober when you- that you learn sober and you remember things better when you 're drunk when you 're drunk. This is sort of one of the ex- one of the not sort of that is one of the explanations of blackouts, of course, of which there are many. The third uh, type of sexual dysfunction I have up there is or what I have termed organic, and organic means there's some actual changes in the body caused by alcohol uh, and drugs that prevents a person from uh, uh, performing sexually. And, and uh, uh, the organic sexual dysfunction can be divided into two types. Uh, uh, number one, uh, uh, the desire to have sex. Alcohol and drugs affects the desire to have sex. Number two, it affects the ability to have sex. Okay, the desire to have sex, in turn, is affected by alcohol in two different ways. One, through the testosterone mechanism that I already alluded to a little bit, and second, through the addiction mechanism that I will talk about in a minute. First, going back to that testosterone mechanism, I already mentioned that two ounces of alcohol increases the male hormone level in both sexes. And, of course, both sexes have uh, male hormone. The female uh, uh, usually produces about 50 milligrams of testosterone a day, and when she drinks more than uh, two ounces of alcohol, it lowers that to 25 milligrams per cent, and if it's that low, then she loses sexual desire. The male usually has about 200 milligrams of testosterone, if he drinks four or six ounces or more, that drops down to 150 milligrams per cent, and he loses sexual desire. So uh, uh, this process has been shown by Dr. Kladmi at Masters and Johnson's. You might be interested, by the way, where he got that information. I thought it was interesting. Anyhow, he got the idea, I should say, from uh, a study done at Duke University, as a matter of fact, uh, and uh, it was done about 30 years ago and the study uh, was done on a group of elderly females. They had 30 elderly females around Duke uh, area there that had advanced breast cancer, and they they had been operated on. The operation was unsuccessful, Uh, and uh, so they were looking for some chemical they could give these uh, 30 elderly females that would slow down the growth of that breast cancer and prolong their lives. And they knew, of course, that female hormone made breast cancer worse, so they theorized that maybe large doses of male hormones would make the breast cancer better. So they put these 30 elderly females uh, on uh, this hospital ward, gave them all large doses of male hormone, and found two very interesting things. Number one, it did indeed slow down the growth of that breast cancer and prolonged the lives of those elderly females. Number two, it made those 30 elderly females very horny. (laughs) And they chased all the young orderlies all over the hospital wards. Now, I have these statistics on how well uh, that uh, testosterone worked as far as the breast cancer is concerned, but I've never been able to find out how well the ladies scored as far as the orderlies are concerned. The uh, second way that alcohol uh, affects the desire to have sex is through the addiction mechanism. And the addiction mechanism goes something like this. If you have a desire to have sex, uh, this is felt as an increase in tension, which is, which is an arrow pointing up, right? And that tension goes on until... I, I
1: thought I felt something going on.
0: that tension goes on until you have sex, uh, and then the tension goes down, like this. Now what happens if you become addicted to alcohol, is if you feel like you have uh, to have a drink, that is felt as an increase in tension. That tension goes on until you have a drink, and the tension goes down. Now, you notice over here, there's uh, arrows going down in two places. That, uh, if you have, you, you know, can't tell, this poor guy doesn't uh, know whether he's horny or thirsty at a time like this because uh, he actually... <laughs> Satisfying, if he satisfies his drinking tension, uh, it automatically satisfies, to some extent, his sexual tension, too, because the human body really can't tell the difference. Now, if you're looking at this blackboard over here, you say, Yeah, but what about the next morning? There's two arrows pointing up over there, uh, and indeed there is. The, uh, the guy is hypersexual, or gal, uh, is hypersexual the next morning. The only thing is he found out one other thing, too, that by this time his spouse is used so mad at him that it doesn't do him any good anyhow. And furthermore, uh, it won't be too many, uh, too long before some of the other things I'm going to talk about will start setting in, uh, and then he'll lose sexual desire. Uh, So uh, alcohol, we're still talking about the organic effects, uh, and uh, there's actual changes in the body that affects the desire, as I just mentioned, and now we're going to talk about the way uh, alcohol and other drugs affects the ability to have sex. And the alcohol and other drugs affects the ability to have sex in three different ways. Number one. Through the testosterone mechanism which gets worse and i'll describe that in a minute number two through the effects on the hypothalamus and number three through the effects on other vital organs especially the liver so we'll talk about those now the daily use of alcohol and incidentally this uh, experiment was done by dr clodney at masters and johnson's and he started doing it on marijuana uh, and heavy joint smoking, in other words, uh, as well as heavy alcohol intake, as well as heavy Valium and Librium and other drugs do the same thing. Uh, but anyhow, uh, the large doses of alcohol... Will lower the male hormone level in both sexes for the following two months. If you drink for about uh, daily for a two-month period of time, and if the male hormone level is down for that long of a period, uh, then the, that patient, uh, that person, will lose uh, not only sexual desire but sexual ability. I think this has an important. Uh, point here as far as recovery because if, uh, a lot of people are going to wonder how well it's all very well to tell me what happened but how long is it going to take me to get better and uh, the answer has got something to do uh, with this uh, uh, this male hormone level actually uh, after two months of heavy drinking the luteinizing hormone of the pituitary gland drops down and so if you stop drinking it really takes about two months uh, before uh, sexual de- uh, uh, ability comes back Sexual desire, however, comes back in about five days after your last drink, and that's very interesting. It's very important, too, to the staff at Brighton Hospital, and I'm sure it is to the staff at Charlotte Treatment Center, too, uh, uh, because the desire comes back in five days, but the ability doesn't come back until two months. If you want to know uh, why the treatment, uh, treatment plans are, are four weeks instead of eight weeks, it's got something to do with this, because we, uh, and we at Brighton Hospital happen to think that's a gift of God to Brighton Hospital uh, that the ability doesn't come back to two months, and that's why we have no plans of extending the stay um, uh, and, uh, to uh, a two-month stay. And the uh, second way that alcohol affects the... Uh, ability to have sex is through the effects on the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is an area of the mid-brain, uh that contains a lot of, uh, of important structures, uh, including our sensual these, uh, appetites and food and everything else. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you know about the norepinephrine and serotonin hormone that goes along with addiction. But when you become physically addicted uh, to uh, chemicals, Uh, What happens is, during your withdrawal period, your norepinephrine and serotonin hormones go up, and those chemicals, those neurohormones, have a depressant effect on the hypothalamus, uh, which knocks out your sex life. About the time you start losing weight, as a result of, uh, of uh, drinking uh, because of loss of appetite, that's when this effect starts happening on the, on the sexual desires, too. And the, impl- the only reason I mention uh, this at this time is because there's a type of, of uh, sexual dysfunction that's peculiar to males uh, that uh, can be extremely important, and, that's a, uh, if, and it's related to this area, and that's uh, a condition called premature ejaculation. And there's about 5% of males have had this problem all their life, And what they have found is that alcohol and valium and librium and that type of thing uh, actually helps this premature ejaculation, makes it better, right? Uh, So when when you're treating an alcoholic who has premature ejaculation, and he found that it's a little bit better when he drinks, he's going to be very reluctant to give up alcohol because he's worried about premature ejaculation coming back. Well, the reason this is important is there's a much better treatment now for premature ejaculation. is called the squeeze technique. It's described by Masters and Johnsons in their book, Human Sexual Inadequacy. And it's worthwhile knowing that because for the males who have this problem to know there's better treatment than alcohol, which didn't work very good anyhow, uh, is uh, is comforting because now if they do stop drinking and they get a recurrence uh, of their premature ejaculation, too close to that a um, they get a recurrence of this premature ejaculation uh, then they can use this squeeze technique uh, that will, uh, uh, will work better anyhow and we can discuss that in the workshop this afternoon if anybody has any particular interest the third way that alcohol affects the ability to have sex is through the effects on the vital organs, and uh, the most important one, probably in this regard, is the liver. At least that's the more the more popular one. And the liver, uh, of course, where is where the the body gets rid of all the uh, hormones and, and toxic chemicals and products of the body and uh, of daily meta- metabolism. And and this, uh, when a healthy liver, there's no problem. But if you get cirrhosis of the liver, uh, then some of the things can accumulate, and, of course, that's why your tolerance to alcohol goes down when you get cirrhosis. Well, uh, you're, you can't get rid of uh, your, your hormones either, and the male produces female hormones just like the female produces male hormones. And the male usually produces about 35 milligrams of estrogens, female hormones, per day from his adrenal glands, and a good, healthy liver gets rid of about 35 milligrams per, per day, so there's no problems. However, if the male develops cirrhosis of the liver, Uh, his female hormone starts accumulating, and he starts uh, becoming effeminized. In other words, his body hair becomes sparse, his beard becomes sparse, he develops breast tissue just like a female, his testicles get small and atrophy, and he becomes impotent. And I'd like to say about these poor unfortunate individuals, as far as wine, women, and song is concerned, they can sing a little bit, and that'll be up an octave or two. (laughs) Okay, they... uh, uh, Third, the fourth way that alcohol affects our ability to our, our sexual lives is uh, what we call the functional dysfunction. And a lot of people who familiar who are familiar with the word functional dysfunction usually uh, uh, think that that's all in your the person's mind. Uh, but this is not true because there's some actual changes in the body caused by uh, uh, fear that it results in functional dysfunction. In other words, if you've been reading much of the sex uh, manuals around since Masters and Johnson's, you'll find an awful lot of references to fear of performance. Well, that's what functional dysfunction is talking about. It's talking about fear, and it's the idea that uh, if, you, if you find yourself at any one time unable to perform... Uh, then, when the opportunity to perform uh, the next time comes around, you're going to be afraid because you, may, you don't want to embarrass yourself, you might not be able to make it you know and this uh, creates somewhat of a problem and it actually makes it actually causes changes in the body uh, that prevent you from performing and it, uh, you know what happens when you're afraid uh, your adrenal gland puts out adrenaline so you can fight back or run like hell and <laughs> He knows about as much about sexual dysfunction as he does about alcoholism. Uh, And uh, uh, the first thing his friendly family doctor said was, John, uh, how old are you? And John said, I'm 55. And the guy said, well, John, what the hell do you expect? You know? Uh, And so now the poor guy's sex life is knocked out completely just because he got some poor advice from his doctor. Okay, how does this refer to us alcoholics? Number one, several ways. Number one, uh, there are about 3% of alcoholics who become alcoholics when their spouse dies, so they'll get a double dose of sexual dysfunction because, indeed, they got problems with alcohol and they got the problems with the use it lose it phenomenon. Two, they say in AA there's no such thing as an uninvolved spouse. Well they say the same thing down at Masters and Johnson's about sexual dysfunction too. They say if you got a, there's no such thing as a non-involved spouse if you got a sexually dysfunctional man, you got a sexually dysfunctional wife or significant other or vice versa. Well, uh, that's certainly pertinent when it comes to alcoholics uh, because uh, certainly the alcoholic can be in treatment and he can find out that uh, he get over his fear of performance because all of his problems were due to alcohol or her problems were due to alcohol, only to get uh, home to find out his spouse or her spouse is sexually dysfunctional because, after all, they've been married to a corpse for several years as far as their sex life is concerned. So uh, it's important to recognize this. But the real connection comes when John the alcoholic, 55-year-old John the alcoholic, goes to see his friendly family doctor. And, of course, what's he going to do? He's going to quit drinking for, uh, you know, a day or two before he goes to see his doctor if he can because he wouldn't want his doctor to think he had an alcohol problem. So he'll quit drinking he'll go see his doctor and he'll say his name is John. He's still 55 and the doctor uh, will examine him and he'll notice that he's got a little tremor there and so he'll write down tremor on John's chart because he'll have a tremor, of course, because he's withdrawing. Uh, And uh, he'll examine him some more and he'll notice his blood pressure is up and his pulse is up because he's withdrawing. And so he'll write down high uh, high blood pressure on John's chart. And so he'll talk to him some more and then he's going to notice how depressed John is because, you know, alcoholism causes depression and all of this. So he's going to write down depression in John's chart. So before John leaves, he's going to say, let's see, John, you were here about uh, your inability to perform sexually. How old did you say you were, 55? What the hell do you expect, John? But you've got a couple of problems that need treatment here. Uh, And that one of those won't be alcoholism because it's most unlikely that John would let on that he has a problem, and it's most unlikely that the doctor will see the significance of those three classical symptoms I just described. So he's going to say, and John, you need something for this tremor here, so here's a prescription for Valium or Librium or something nice like that, you know. So now John's problem is just doubled by the results of this uh, trip to the doctor's office. But the doctor isn't done yet, because he's going to say, and John, your blood pressure needs treatment. Here's a prescription for l or Ismalin, guanethidine, Catapress, uh uh, Resurping one of those beauties and they're just about as bad as the others for causing sexual dysfunction so now John's got a triple dose of sexual dysfunction but the doctor isn't done yet he said then John this depression needs treatment here's a prescription for Melaril or Thorazine or bifactyl or Toprinil or, or Elavil or Triavil or one of those beauties and if John is ever able to function again it'll be a sheer miracle uh, <laughs> uh, because uh, he's been he's been decommissioned for the rest of his life so uh, simply as a result of that visit. Uh, okay, those are the four uh, types of sexual dysfunction that I used to talk about uh, uh, and, and I would go to Al-Anon meetings a lot of time and get talks similar to this and almost invariably after the Al-Anon meeting some a uh, lady would, usually a lady would uh, stand up or come up to me and she'd say, Well, Doc, if alcoholism causes all this sexual dysfunction you're talking about, how come uh, my husband has these three or four girlfriends I keep hearing about all the time? Well, I used to say, I used to answer that question like this, and i say, Well, two reasons for that, probably. Number one is that uh, he probably is using those new girlfriends as pornographic material sort of stimulate what is otherwise a waning sex life, you know? And I said, secondly, he probably isn't any more successful with them than he is with you anyhow, Uh, and that still is a pretty good answer to that question, but now I realize uh, there's another type of sexual dysfunction that I call specific sexual dysfunction that I had written up there, and specific sexual dysfunction refers to one person only. The person, uh, this person can uh, function uh, with... Uh, strangers, but not with his spouse. And, and uh, I owe this information that I'm going to uh, give you right now to a doctor by the name of Peter Martin, who is a marital therapist in Ann Arbor. And he doesn't treat alcoholics, not knowingly anyhow. Uh, and uh, uh, Peter Martin, I asked him once uh, after a seminar he was, uh, he was talking at, I said, Pete, what's the chief cause of sexual dysfunction in your practice? And he said, unquestionably, the chief cause of sexual dysfunction in my practice is hostility. Now, if the chief cause of sexual dysfunction in his practice is hostility, imagine how important hostility is in alcoholic marriages, where alcohol is the drug par excellence of hostility and aggression. Uh, So now I realize that there can be such a thing as a couple uh, who have so much hostility and aggression uh, going towards each other Uh, that uh, they do become uh, dysfunctional with that person uh, because of the hostility factor Uh, and yet for a period of time before some of these other things I've talked about set in, uh, they could for a period of time perform with relative strangers or casual acquaintances and so forth. Now about two or three years ago I started talking about the hostility factor during my talk and there was a a lawyer there from out east at the time and he came up to me after the talk and he said, Dr. He said, are you suggesting adultery as a treatment for sexual dysfunction? I was so shocked by his question, I have never uh, failed to quote him from that time to this because I want you to know that if there's any one thing I'm not suggesting is adultery for the treatment of sexual dysfunction. My suggestion is that you overcome the hostility uh, and get on to uh, the ability to perform and, of course, quit drinking, uh, which brings us up to the, that part of this part of the talk that I want to talk about... Uh, uh, overcoming the hostility and I again have to depend on Peter Martin uh, for a uh, baseline to discuss that because what, during that same seminar when Pete, uh, Pete uh, talked about uh, hostility as a chief cause of sexual dysfunction I said well how do you overcome uh, sexual dysfunction uh, how do you overcome hostility and he said well that's easy you just form a perfect marriage well uh he was, of course, talking tongue-in-cheek, uh, but he did explain what he uh, meant, and, and this is what he meant. He said, overcome a perfect marriage, uh, you got uh, to, overcome a, hostility. you got to form a perfect marriage, which, uh, a perfect marriage is like two trees standing side by side, each tree able to stand on its own roots or its own feet, if you're talking about individuals or, or trees, and, and the two trees together are more protection than either one standing alone for the people in that marriage or underneath those trees. Well, now uh, that really makes sense to me, and it really makes sense as a recovering alcoholic because basically that's what Al-Anon and AA is all about. Because Al-Anon is a a form of therapy in which the spouse of the alcoholic goes to uh, treatment or Al-Anon meetings, and he or she finds out to, how to be self, uh, how to be independent. Uh, mutually sharing uh, with reciprocal obligations, uh, uh, and stand on her, his, or her own two feet. And then the uh, alcoholic goes to AA meetings and finds out how to do the same thing, and the two together become two tracks, like two tracks of a railroad track, going in the uh, same direction, never deviating, never uh, meeting, uh, but uh, uh, both reaching, that desti- uh, uh, reaching in the same direction, happiness being, of course, a direction, not a destination. Uh, so I think we alcoholics probably are the most fortunate people in the world when it comes to forming a perfect marriage, because we have perfect uh, treatment available to us uh, to do that uh, there is some relationship here uh, however to uh, another philosophy that's very popular right now and I'd like to talk about that in a, for a minute because it certainly is, helps the, uh, the, drink, the sexually dysfunctional alcoholic uh, sexually dysfunctional male I should say alcoholic or otherwise and that's the philosophy of women's liberation Women's liberation, you know, is the greatest thing that ever happened to the sexually dysfunctional male because the females are telling us that sex is something they they want to do with us. You know, sex at one time was something the male did for the female, you know, or excuse me, sex originally was something the male did to the female back in the Victorian times, you know, and she was supposed to endure but not enjoy. Then the sexual revolution came along and sex became something the male did for the female and he was supposed to know where all the erogenous zones were and, and um, make sure she was satisfied, you know? And, of course, we guys took our job seriously, too. Uh, 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 we read all the sex manuals, and we pretty much had it down to a fine science. And you guys know what it is. It was uh, Sex became simply a matter of a peck of the cheek, a tweak of the breast, a dive to the clitoris, and stick with it till something happened. And... and uh, Uh, he's thinking he's God's gift to women and she's thinking I wish God had picked this joker up and taken back Uh, uh, he's thinking he's a real Don Juan in bed and she's thinking he's more like a gorilla playing on a violin now women's liberation has brought us Past that point, as sex is no longer something we do to them, sex is no longer the male does for them. But sex is something the male does with the female, and and, uh, uh, and it's our, they have responsibility for each other, but and uh, to each other, but not. Uh, and it's a mutual type of thing. It's a sharing type of thing, and that's just great. You want to know overcome how to overcome fear of performance? You remember the story I'm going to tell you right now, and you'll have it down cold. And the story. It's about a, a man and a woman who met in a the bar. They wanted to get to know each other better, so they go across the street to the motel, and she takes off all his clothes, and he takes off all her clothes, and the guy wasn't endowed too well in the sex department down there, and he looks down at her, and he rather disappointed. He says, my, he said... Uh, she, uh, he, she looks down at him, I mean, and he wasn't endowed too well. And she looks down at him and says, my, she said, uh, who do you expect to satisfy with that? He looks at her completely undaunted, Uh, with a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye and he said me (laughs) that's the way you overcome uh, fear of performance Uh, uh, I think I'm about out of time uh, so I just want to close in talking about uh, uh, one other thing I guess and that's uh, uh, that that overcoming uh, this hostility factor and forming a perfect marriage is pretty much sharing the type of things that I talked about this afternoon, because uh, most of the uh, anxiety and, and hostility in a marriage uh, comes from the lack of interest in the other person, and most people think that, that people are falling out of love, if you will, and they don't realize that it's the alcohol that's causing this, and basically... Uh, it's important to realize that a, a relationship is, a, is an ongoing type of thing, and our uh, sort of uh, coincides in a parallel line with the development of our sex life. Uh, our emotional development, it parallels pretty much our sexual development, and our sexual development starts back in the teenage years where uh, sex is simply a matter of lust. It's uh, 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 sex for sex's sake and nothing else. And this progresses to that point that we call physical intimacy at the time of marriage where the uh, couple surrenders their virginity, both of them, uh, and through the intimacy they gain there, they continue on uh, to a true emotional uh, intimacy which comes with years and years of living together. What most people don't realize is that alcohol reverses that process uh, and the in our sex life and our emotional life uh, goes the other way. And, uh, uh, and this ends up in a, this, uh, this these feelings of hostility and aggression that people feel as falling out of love and that the person doesn't care for them anymore or actually it's simply a matter of... Uh, uh, of the alcohol causing that. This is one of the other reasons, by the way, uh, for premature ejaculation. I talked earlier about a type of premature ejaculation that's made better by alcohol. Well, there's another type of premature ejaculation that's made worse by alcohol because of this aggression factor. Al- sex can be a way for the male to get even uh, with the uh, female, and if uh, t- and he can, uh, it can actually be an act of aggression. I can remember uh, when I was a drinking alcoholic, I would uh, con- cons- uh, have con- Consultations with patients and I would say that alcohol, uh, well, excuse me, that sex was an act of aggression. Now I realize that, uh, that I was all wet at that time and that was my own alcoholism talking because the male at the time of ejaculation can have an attitude of take that you SOB rather than an act of love. This is not uh, the true emotions of that person but that's the, an emotion of the alcohol and alcoholism. So it's a matter of overcoming the hostility by communicating these things uh, and I think, uh, uh, of course, stopping drinking uh, and uh, learning to uh, grow emotionally again. And I don't think anything is better for that than our own program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Thank you. What we would do is I'd sort of go over that same outline. Uh, talk about a few things that come to my mind and uh, get questions from the floor during the first hour also, okay? Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, the I don't know the answer to what you do uh, when you don't have a bicycle, except every time I leave Brighton Hospital. And nowadays, the nurses seem to ask me if I'm taking my bicycle with me when I go or not, and um, other than that, I, I don't know any answer to that. Um, Uh, On primary sexual dysfunction, uh, I don't know, sometimes I've been talking about this subject for so long and some of the basic things uh, escape me and and I think the things that come to my mind in primary sexual dysfunction uh, is uh, the reassurance of the people. Number one, that sex is a normal function. I think that's important. Uh, But then I think it's also important to know uh, just exactly what a normal uh, function is. For instance, Uh, males, and uh, and females too, but males, uh, especially during their teen years, uh, are, of course, especially hypersexual, and uh, they can have uh, ejaculations, orgasms, uh, three or four times a day uh, with a refractory period of only minutes uh, between ejaculations, and that's normal. On the other hand... On the other hand, uh, uh, as you grow older, the refractory period increases uh, so that uh, at age 70 or 80, uh, it very well may possibly be as long as a week. Uh, And I think it's important to uh, let people who are sexually dysfunctional uh, know what is normal for them. The the refractory period in someone, uh, say who is 50 or 55 in that area, Uh, usually is still measured in hours uh, uh, and at most uh, in a a day or two. So I think it's important to know what what you're aiming at as far as uh, recovery is concerned because a lot of times uh, someone will uh, come to you as an alcoholic who started drinking heavy when he was in his teens or, or early 20s when his refractory period was actually uh, minutes, and he thinks he's having a sexual dysfunction, uh, if he's now 45 or 50, uh, and he can, and uh, his frequency of intercourse is uh, something less uh, than seven or t- 10 per week, or something like that, you know, or you got to l- let them know what is what is to be what is can be expected. Now, the average, of course, uh, sexual outlets per week in the average adult male. Uh, after he's 30 is probably 2.7 per week according to masters and johnsons the range can be uh can considerably uh greater than that i mean there can uh there can be people in the in the in ages of 40 50 and 60 who can be having daily or even more frequent uh ejaculations but uh that if you're trying to get somebody to be uh to get back to a point that's impossible physiologically then you're not dealing with a sexual dysfunction so i think it's important to know what to expect but this more important, I think, to uh, not uh, uh, give the attitude that uh, that age has anything to do with with the inability to have sex. I mean, it's a matter of, of the story about the, the doctor there, where what do you expect uh, uh, if you're not able to function sexually at 55, what the hell do you expect? I mean, that's never normal, absolutely never normal, and uh, so I think this is important. One of the other things that comes to my mind uh, in this regard is uh, the fact that uh, erections in the uh, in the elderly uh, cannot be as as uh, uh, tumescent or as rigid as e- erections during uh, teenage years, and a lot of people who have had periods of, of uh, impotence uh, will find that that uh, uh, when they recover, uh, they are not having erections like they remembered in their teen years, and of course that sometimes never occurs. Uh, so I think you have to. Uh, when you're getting a history from a person, you have to be able, to, you have to uh, uh, know what the what uh, what the problem they are discussing for, to make sure that it's a problem because some things can't uh, uh, are are normal range. In other words, this this is, there is this refractory period, uh, and you have to be sure of what that of of uh, what their refractory period is. Now, one of the easiest ways to know whether somebody is having a uh, a Physical reason for their sexual dysfunction, as far as males is concerned, uh, is males, of course, have no dream erections uh, or uh, or uh, uh, morning erections if they uh, if they're having problems uh, with their testosterone levels. I mean, if they're actually having a deficiency of testosterone, and of course, there's some other things that can cause uh, inability to have morning erections too that are physical, such as. Uh, diabetes and that, but uh, for, I'm talking now about uh, the things directly related to alcoholism. Uh, you could, If they have the inability to have morning erections after two months of abstinence from all drugs and alcohol, uh, then of course that's an indication that there is a physical reason, not a psychological reason for their problem and uh, replacement of hormone lovel- uh, levels with testosterone injections can be tried and usually will be successful if that person is not having... Uh, morning erections. Now, uh, in uh, the course of my particular practice, uh, I'll probably not treat more than three patients a year with male hormones, and if you consider that I, there are 1,500 patients a year roughly go through Brighton Hospital, uh, you can see that this is not a big problem as far as male hormone replacement. But it is worth it is an important question to ask because it certainly differentiates the physically impaired uh, from uh, the uh, psychologically impaired. The fear of performance one way or another, directly or indirectly, is probably going to account for uh, most of the sexual dysfunctions. Inability to communicate, of course, being an integral part of that. I mean, if there's any one thing that I think causes a sexual dysfunction among married couples, is it's going to be the inability to communicate. And we'll get more into more on that a little bit later. Uh, but uh, this is one of the things. I think another thing that Masters and Johnson stressed when I was down there, and I, which is uh, extremely important, is. Uh, the methods of intercourse, uh, uh, of course, are described in all kinds of textbooks. But except for one thing that very rarely is is uh, talked about, and that's who inserts the penis during intercourse, and uh, this can make more males lose an erection than anybody, any, than any one other thing. Uh, and if you were to pay fifteen hundred dollars in treatment down at Masters and Johnson's. Uh, uh, one of the first things they would uh, tell you that is extremely important is the female inserts the penis into the vagina, not the male, uh, because more, re- more erections are lost in that process than any other uh, s- single uh, uh, process. So I think this that little bit of information is extremely important to uh, uh, parlay to your uh, patients. Uh, okay, as far as primary, the primary thing, I think that's the... Points I want to cover before we go on to the, the five different points of secondary sexual dysfunction. So if there's any questions in that regard, we can cover those now.
2: No questions on primary dysfunction?
0: The question is
2: uh, for Dr. Moran, does he take uh, testosterone levels uh, in uh, making the diagnosis or on clinical uh, evidence alone?
0: Uh, The answer to that is uh, no, uh, and perhaps that's a, a fault of mine, but I really can't get excited about male hormone levels because I've worked in bioassay laboratories and i frankly don't have the faith in the results uh, and if i should ever have faith in the results i certainly would do that and so i if i get a result and it's down i still would go ahead and try the the hormones
1: uh, how about uh, uh, on the rest of
2: question is that I does a diminished amount of thyroid have a causative effect on uh, testosterone levels?
0: can't say as I have any definitive information on that uh, uh, other than in relationship to females. Uh, there's no doubt that when it comes to function of the ovaries, thyroid has an important uh, plays an important role, and I certainly When I was a a general practitioner and and had uh, a lot of female patients, uh, there definitely seemed to be a a relationship to uh, thyroid dysfunction, hypothyroidism and ovarian dysfunction. And uh, the, ability, the the fertility of that patient, and it, seem, it definitely would seem to increase not only their desire but their ability to reproduce by giving thyroid. When, in fact, I know it did when they were had hypothyroidism, but uh, I can't say as I have much more to say about it than that. Uh, I don't just. So this is available on not, uh, I, the only thing that I would say is I have seen some information showing hyperthyroidism depresses the luteinizing hormone so that you have less uh, testicular and ovarian stimulation because of an overactive thyroid, but that works sort of like is similar to the effects of exogenous Cortisone. You know, if you take uh, cortisone for arthritis, you're going to get a depression of the pituitary, which will affect the luteinizing hormone, and you can get testicular atrophy and atrophy of the ovaries. And the same thing can occur with excess of uh, uh, thyroid, whether it be exogenous or endogenous. Uh, but I really haven't, uh, had, don't have anything really important to offer in that respect. I don't have too much knowledge in that. Yes? Uh, Dr. Moore, what... What effect does the blood pressure medicines that we take nowadays have on the
2: primary dysfunction? The question is, what uh, effect does the blood pressure medicines that are used today have on uh, sex function?
0: Well, uh, they, work in, they work, of course, against uh, sexual dysfunction. A lot of them do in a lot of ways. Some of them understood and some not understood. The, the vast majority of your blood pressure medications, one, day, one way or the other, affect your uh, vascular system. They dilate blood vessels. They, restrict, they constrict other blood vessels, your ganglionic blocking agents. So they, in other words, dam, uh, uh, dam up blood in some areas and circulate blood uh, better in others. Uh, and so, anytime you're dealing with something that affects the the uh, vascular system, the circulatory system, you're, you're taking a chance of endangering uh, the uh, the ability to have sex. You know, uh, but there are a lot of other ways too. For instance, reserpine, the uh work on the hypothalamus uh, and uh, your, your neuro your neurohormones such as the uh, serotonin and the norepinephrine levels and those have a suppressant effect on, uh, on the sex, you know, sexual desire and sexual ability uh, directly. I mean, this affects an important area of the brain that controls appetite, uh, food appetite, as well as sexual appetite. Some of those things are, uh, are, will have an effect on some people and not others. For instance, uh, indirel, uh propranolol, is a drug that can affect a few people as far as their sex life is concerned, but the vast majority has no effects at all. Uh, uh, so there's, there's some idiosyncrasies. You can say, you know, that uh, it's very difficult to say that uh, blood pressure pills have no effect on somebody's sex life. You can certainly say that uh, this particular blood pressure pill or that particular blood pressure pill is unlikely to, and that certainly occurs. Uh, the ones that are unlikely to are inderil the thiazides, diarrheal, uh, um, uh, hydrodiaryl and, and uh, that, and diazide and that type of thing. They're very unlikely to. Uh, on the other hand, there are some that are extremely likely to, such as the ricerpenes, rawwulfias, catapress, uh, uh, aldomet is extremely bad. Uh, The Aldermet works on the central uh, system, too, uh, in the brain, too. That's a dopamine uh, type of reaction, and that's hypothalamic again. Uh, But uh, it's either, as far as I uh, know, it's either through the central nervous system, the brain, directly affecting, suppressing the sex drive, uh, or it's through the vascular uh, mechanism.
2: The question was, does diabetes affect uh, sexual function in any way?
0: Uh, diabetes, of course, certainly affects sexual function. It's probably uh, one of the more prominent, prominent causes of sexual dysfunction other than alcoholism and drugs, Uh, it is not the level of blood sugar that has anything to do with it, however, nor is it the control of diabetes. Uh, uh, You can have your diabetes in perfectly uh, good control and have uh, absolutely horrible sexual function, and the reverse can be true. You can have your blood sugars bouncing all over the place and have no inhibition of sexual function at all. When I was at Masters and Johnson, they pretty much felt that the problem was at the spinal cord level, as far as... uh, Uh, diabetes and and it was sort of a, a peripheral neuritis related to purple neuritis or posterior horn uh, uh, mechanism. It's, there are a lot of people, of course, who feel that diabetes is not a disease of, of sugar metabolism, but it's a vascular disease, uh, and that's, of course, why you have the hemorrhages in the eyes and so forth, in the uh, retina of the eyes, and uh, there could be a combined uh, posterior horn effect as well as a vascular effect uh, with actual blood clots, emboli, and so forth in the, uh, the uh, uh, pelvic uh, vascular system.
2: No other questions. What uh, is the relationship between prostate function and sexual functions? The question is, what is the difference? The relationship between prostate function and sexual functions.
0: Uh, the prostate gland uh, uh, secretes the. Vehicle of which sperm uh, are ejaculated in. Uh, in other words, the sperm themselves make up uh, uh, a pinhead uh, volume as far as the ejaculation. And the most of the ejaculation is concerned, of secretions from the prostate gland to uh, to uh, uh, carry the sperm out. Uh, and As a a whole, the prostate gland doesn't have much uh, to do as far as sexual desire or sexual ability because people can have a total prostate gland removed uh, and have absolutely no inhibition of sexual function other than the fact that they will not have any volume or or very little volume, and and the the ejaculation may go back into the bladder rather than out the meatus of the penis. uh, uh, But as far as the sensation is concerned, It can be identical. The exception, of course, being uh, if the nerve supply to the prostate gland uh, has been interrupted too much, then there can be some decreased uh, sensation uh, at at the time of ejaculation. But if everything goes the way it's supposed to be, uh, it's a relatively benign, prostatectomy is a relatively benign procedure as far as sensation is concerned uh and uh, uh there should and uh, it's just a matter of, uh, of ejaculatory volume and, and you may not even see that anyhow because it may uh, be ejaculated retrograde into the bladder and then you don't see the the sperm and pros, uh seminal fluid in that until uh, you urinate yes
2: Tagamet, the question is how does Tagamet
0: uh, affect your sex life? Tagamet, unlike uh, uh, your other uh, uh, ulcer medications, has an effect directly on the, the parietal cells of the stomach as far as acid secretion. So to my knowledge, it has no adverse effect on the sex life, uh, uh, unlike, ben, uh, like, unlike Bentil and, and Probanthine and Banthine and that type of thing, which can... Have effects similar to blood pressure medications, uh, as far as uh, uh, the both the ability to ejaculate can inhibit ejaculation, and, and it can, of course, uh, change the blood supply is, uh, in various ways. Okay, going on to secondary sexual dysfunction, uh, we have the, of course, the first group was the intrapsychic group, and uh, there are probably some. Questions that some people want to talk about—that it's a controversial subject. Uh, certainly, with homosexual panic, uh, a lot of alcoholics, uh, uh, when they think of being, uh, being homosexual, uh, they, this, uh, this, they don't want to have two problems. You know, this is one of the uh, things with being, uh, having sexual problems that originally they didn't want to talk about it at AA meetings and in treatment centers because alcoholism at one time was a moral issue and and sex problem sex at one time was a moral issue, and, and anybody coming in from treatment didn't want to have too bad, didn't want to be bad twice, two doses of being bad. They didn't want to be alcoholic and, and sexually bad, too. And then you start throwing that word homosexual around. Uh, uh, you get a lot of people straightening up and, and uh, resisting the, uh, the discussion altogether. I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, by habit, I started covering it early in my... Uh, talk so people could uh, re- uh, get over the resentments they had about that and, and uh, listen to the rest of the, the talk, I guess. But anyhow, uh, the homosexuality, I mentioned the fact that homosexual panic exists, and in, I, in my mind it certainly does, uh, and I implied that uh, uh, the, at one time, I said that at one time the psychiatrist felt that all alcoholics were homosexuals, and I implied that this has been proven to be not true, uh, and uh, uh, that there were, uh, alcoholics were not homosexuals and it had more to do with homosexual panic or the fears of being. Well, I, that, what I said is absolutely true. However, there is no doubt uh, that uh, both males and females get a lot of resentments to the opposite sex. Uh, when they're uh, dabbling in alcohol and drugs, and all the arguments and resentments and hate that goes on, uh, they do uh, get some feelings, and they're not always good uh, towards the opposite sex. And uh, there are a lot of people who find uh, having sex with someone of the same sex, or at least the thought of having sex with some of the people of the same sex, is more palatable to them than adultery, Uh, and uh, so if they are having uh, problems with having sex with their spouse or significant other, uh, they may uh, indeed entertain the, the possibility of having sex with somebody Of the same sex uh, for several reasons. Number one, because they have the resentments to the opposite sex. Number two, because they have uh, feelings, uh, some strong religious or other feelings against adultery, even though homosexuality they view as bad. Uh, In some people's mind, homosexuality is not as bad as adultery, Uh, so if they're going to cheat, so to speak, it seems more permissible to cheat with somebody of the same sex than the opposite sex. Uh, uh, And number three, uh, the, uh, uh, there's no commitment with someone of the same sex. The one night... Did uh, I if if, uh, if say the same sex? There's no commitment to somebody with the same sex. People can uh, have a uh, one-night stand, so to speak, much easier uh, with a person of the same sex than with the opposite sex because almost invariably uh, a, a relationship with the opposite sex uh, uh, involves time and, and a commitment and so forth, and a lot of people are not willing to get into this. I think... Um, Uh, uh, one of the things that came up by by, uh, David Smith about homosexuals and now I'm talking about the the so-called Uh, Pure homosexual, or the the person who has identified themselves as being homosexual, not those people who may have had a homosexual experience. By the way, I think it's important to realize a homosexual experience or two uh, is doesn't make someone a homosexual any more than than a a drink of alcohol or two makes somebody an alcoholic. You know, and and way back when way back when the Kinsey wrote his report, uh, uh, he uh, defined homosexuality as someone who had uh, six uh, or more homosexual experiences so uh, I think that that's probably not a bad definition of a homosexual and so I think that's important to relieve people's minds too because if, uh, it's, not, it's not impossible for a very much of a heterosexually oriented person to have hom- a homosexual relationship or a few homosexual relationships and, and uh, homosexual panic in those people could be a very serious incapacitating uh, condition. So I think reassurance in this regard uh, can be very important. David Smith the uh, medical director of Haight-Ashbury Clinic in San Francisco uh, uh, points out that homosexuals Uh, alcoholics have the same similar problems as the female alcoholic as far as their sex life is concerned. You know, you might say, well, if you're committed to homosexuality, then you wouldn't have these interpsychic hang-ups that I described for heterosexuals, but that's not true. uh, 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 Homosexuals become impotent or or non-orgasmic, depending whether they're male or female, uh, just like heterosexuals do. And they react like the female alcoholic as far as their recovery because uh, they become depressed just like the heterosexual does. Uh, because of their alcoholism, but they're not likely to see their depression as caused by their alcoholism. In fact, if they go see a psychiatrist, uh, invariably that psychiatrist will say you're depressed because of your homosexuality uh, and they'll get them to try to either accept their homosexuality or convert to uh, heterosexuality if that were possible. And I'll talk about that in a minute since now there's some talk in the By Masters and Johnsons that uh, homosexuals can be converted to heterosexuals and and, uh, they were talking about that when I was down there several years ago. But anyhow, uh, David Smith said that homosexuals uh, are a lot like females when it comes to their reaction to their alcoholism because the female sees their spouse, as I mentioned, as the cause of their depression and and their miserable sex life, not their alcohol, so they sort of crawl into the woodwork and not do anything about it because they don't realize the problem is with the alcohol, not not the prince. And the same is true of the uh, homosexual. He sees or she sees her homosexuality as the cause of their depression, not their alcoholism, and so uh, they they are difficult to get to treatment uh, and hard to treat because one of their primary things that bothers all of us when we come to treatment is we're feeling miserable, Uh, and we uh, a lot of us see at least uh, the direct connection between our misery and our alcoholism. Where this is less so when you got such a another. major problem here facing you like homosexuality, it's easy to believe that it's not the alcohol that's making you miserable and depressed, but it's your homosexuality, so they're harder to get to treatment. Masters and Johnson's just published some statistics in the pa- uh, recently. It reminded me of what they told me when I was down there. I would sort of forgotten about it until this article in Time magazine this week, and that sort of refreshed my memory about all that. And, and uh, that 47% of homosexuals, they were doing that work when I was down there, as I said. And they said that 47% of homosexuals could be converted to heterosexuality. Uh, but uh, that's a statement that has to be viewed and, and uh, in relationship to their interpretation of that. And I want to give you some background information that I think will help you understand what they're saying. Uh, And one thing they're saying is that all Humans are sexual animals. They're uh, neither primar- uh, absolutely heterosexual or absolutely homosexual, but uh, they can respond sexually, uh, and they just have a, a, a preference. Well, what, what uh, Masters and Johnson's uh, stuff is saying is that uh, you can take someone who is as a... An identification or a preference for being a homosexual, uh, and let them and make them or help them or to enjoy a heterosexual experience. And the way they apparently are doing that uh, is they they first studied heterosexuals and found out what uh, their sex lives were like, and they found that heterosexuals uh, are have twenty have uh, are twenty five. Let me start again. Heterosexuals who use heterosexual uh, techniques, mainly intercourse, exclusively for their sexual outlets are, have 25% less orgasms than heterosexuals who use a combination of heterosexual and homosexual techniques. In other words, heterosexuals who use uh, masturbation, partner manipulation, and oral sex, in addition to intercourse, are going to have sexual outlets four times more frequently than uh, heterosexuals who use intercourse alone. Uh, Now, uh, what the Masters and Johnsons have done uh, is is teaching the homosexual who wants to become a heterosexual these facts and letting them know that that all human beings are sexual animals with, with certain orientations. In other words, they're giving the homosexuals Permission to use their homosexual techniques in heterosexual relationships because heterosexuals, after all, are doing it too. Uh, uh, so that doesn't seem to be uh, asking too much. Uh, uh, so in this regard, they can convert 47 uh, percent of homosexuals uh, to successful relationship with heterosexuals, uh, and that's all that uh, study means. I mean, it's uh, it's sort of lost in the in the. Uh, scientific jargon there, but if you—I uh, was there when they sort of uh, deciphered all that information uh, in uh, group in group therapy in group sessions down there. So uh, it was easier for me to pick that out of the uh, Time magazine than that than what it may be if you haven't uh, had it explained to you on the basis like when I was down there. In other words, this is something that I have uh, sort of suspected for a long time. Anyhow, I was—I had to sort of. Uh, thought about the thing that if you take a homosexual, a, a, uh, an avid homosexual, if you will, and put him on a desert island with a female and leave him there for five years, I got a feeling that that homosexual would end up uh, in a heterosexual relationship of some kind before the end of those five years. I mean, uh, that's basically uh, what Masters and Johnson's uh, uh, studies are showing, and uh, I don't think that uh, uh, that's unusual. I think uh, uh, the reverse could also be true. I think that if you take a heterosexual and and put him on a desert island with a homosexual, uh, with a man of the same sex, I should say, or woman of the same sex, uh, the same thing would probably occur uh, at the end of it before the five years was up. So basically, I think that uh, uh, if uh, the uh, if both heterosexuals and homosexuals. Are given the freedom to uh, use a lot of different uh, sexual techniques, uh, uh, they could uh, probably f- uh, function in more situations than they otherwise can imagine themselves doing. Okay, we can. Uh, th- uh, this particular topic then includes the uh, the uh, homosexual pa- uh, panic castration complex, virgin horror concept, um, penis envy. Uh, 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 Someday my prints will come, theory and so forth, if anybody has any questions in this range of interpsychic hang-ups, in other words. Any questions in this field?
2: Let's go to the next
0: one, I guess. Questions. Okay, I always uh, learn more from these uh, workshops than... uh, than the people who are attending them, I'm sure, so I appreciate any comments or questions anybody may have, because it can be a learning experience uh, for me, uh, if not anybody else. Uh, Okay, the second uh, group of the secondary sexual dysfunctions uh, was the state-dependent learning thing, the idea that uh, we uh, remember things we learn better drinking, better drinking, and we remember things we learn sober, better sober uh, and this means uh, we uh, I can think right now of, uh, of a, uh, a patient we had at Brighton Hospital last month who both he and his uh, spouse Uh, insisted, of course, that uh, uh, he functioned very well sexually when he was drunk or or drinking. uh, uh, And the explanation for this uh, is simply in my uh, uh, mind that these people have the ability to... uh, They they do not have the ability to perform sober, so if they're going to remain sexual at all, uh, they do so uh, under the influence of alcohol. This, of course, is related to the original thing. One of the things I didn't cover at all was uh, how uh, it was suspected at one time that alcohol uh, uh, was an aphrodisiac, you know, and then they explained that it really wasn't an aphrodisiac. That alcohol made your sex life better because it relieved your inhibitions. Uh, and uh, it uh, uh, now they realize it does have uh, through that testosterone mechanism, it does actually increase the male hormone level. So it uh, in both sexes, so it does make uh, it is really an aphrodisiac. But there's no doubt that it also relieves inhibitions. And this is, and I don't think there's any alcoholics in this room that don't realize that doesn't realize that alcohol gives you feelings of omnipotence and uh, makes you feel all powerful and all strong. I I think uh, Joe uh, Kirby last night mentioned how it made him uh, taller and bigger, you know. Uh, uh, and I heard uh, one of the gals from his general service office last year at an AA talk, she was a little overweight and, and too tall, and it made her shorter and slimmer, you know. And uh, uh, that's uh, pretty much the way alcohol does for all of us. Whatever it is that uh, we want out of it, uh, uh, originally we can, get out of it. we can get that. So you take a person who uh, has uses alcohol and drugs to get these feelings of omnipotence, and uses them uh, starting way back in his teen years, uh, he can have, uh, he, can, he can really uh, go through some sexual gymnastics that can be very pleasant to a, a co-alcoholic or a non-alcoholic partner uh, and uh, uh, when he or she sobers up uh, because uh, they, have their, they have less ingenuity in their sexual acts and absolutely no ability to perform sober because they never did, uh, then uh, their sex life can seemingly be uh, very uh, boring in comparison to the way it was, and, uh, and occasionally I hear that uh, from a, a person but and until I heard uh, david Smith dr. David Smith talk uh, uh, i didn 't realize uh, i, I didn 't have an explanation for that other than this, the one that was originally given uh, you know way back when I was in medical school that alcohol relieved inhibitions and therefore uh, made you more daring and, and that, that type of thing related to this, I think perhaps is uh, with the female alcoholic is uh, that al- uh, drunk is seducible. Uh, I think that in a male, a lot of males' minds, probably most males' minds, uh, uh, drunk is seducible. And uh, so, therefore, alcohol be- uh, has carries with it its own uh, sexual stimulation uh, because, uh, the, uh, on, on the one hand, drunk is seducible, and on the other hand, alcohol gives you an inferiority complex. So, if uh, the alcoholic is Let's assume that we're talking about a male alcoholic who has got low feelings about himself and and poor feelings about himself, comes in contact uh, with a uh, female who is sober and uh, 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 knows who she is and where she is and so forth. Uh, uh, He is less likely to be able to make out or even want to try to uh, then that, pers- that same male with an inferiority complex coming in contact with a female who is drinking and who, in his mind, uh, a drunk is seducible, uh, then he's got the uh, uh, the ability uh, to try to uh, seduce or make out. And, of course, uh, you have to have the courage to try before anybody becomes uh, successful. I mean, if you don't try, you're not going to get any place. So I think that's... A, Uh, one of the things that's that's working as far as the state-dependent learning thing. Any questions in that regard? Yes.
2: state-dependent
1: learning in that regard is fungible. Could that have ramifications in other areas of our drug. when we sell the drugs? Say again, please. In regard to learning things while we're drunk,
2: question is that those who drink when they're young and learn have an experience of learning at that time does this have effect at a later time? Uh,
0: yes, um, very definitely in a lot of ways. number one of course is uh, what, as I sort of alluded to this morning just our plant some of a lot of different reasons for blackouts and, and uh, w- one of the explanations for them uh, is simply because we learn something while we we're drinking and we forget it when we're sober. That's one of the explanations for him. But I remember uh, right at this time, I remember an English professor from the University of Michigan who was a patient at Brighton Hospital uh, and who uh, left there and, and stayed sober uh, for a period of time and then he came back for the second time. And when he was in the second time, I uh, give this talk, a talk similar to this. I used talking about state-dependent learning. I happened to use it in a different lecture at that time, but I talked about it anyhow, and he came up to me after the talk and he said he was really grateful, uh, to hear about that because that's one of the reasons why he didn't stay sober when he left Brighton Hospital the first time because he was an English professor and had, uh, learned all of his, uh, lectures under the influence of alcohol, uh, and when he left Brighton Hospital, uh, he couldn't remember how to give his lectures, uh. And uh, he was really disconcerted, to say the least, about that. And so he went back to drinking and found, of course, he could give the lectures drinking. And he happens to live in Ann Arbor, of course, where I do, and I see him at AA meetings all the time there. And and I know that what he did the second time he left Brighton Hospital uh, was go home and reread his own lecture notes and learn them sober. And he's had no trouble at all since then. So I'm sure there's all kinds of uh, situations like that that pertain. Any other questions in this field? Okay, the third uh, group then was the organic ones, uh, where there's actual changes in the body uh, caused by alcohol and drugs that keep us from performing uh, sexually uh, because of the changes in the body. And of course, uh, uh, in some ways, we've already talked about that in relationship to the vascular system and diabetes. So, I mean, these uh, these are not individual, separate, isolated categories. They're obviously as overlapping here. But in, in this group, I usually think of the effects of male hormone uh, on the male hormone and uh, as I said when I was in master's down at master Johnson's at that time they were just doing the studies on marijuana and they found that heavy uh, use of marijuana three or four joints in any one night lowered the male hormone level for the following six or eight hours and if it was down for only that long then you lost sexual desire daily use of uh, marijuana for a uh, two-month period of time lowered the male hormone level down for the following two months, and if it's down for that long, uh, then you lose the ability both sexes involved, of course. Now, that since I left Master Johnson's, that has been expanded uh, uh, to uh, uh, alcohol and valium librium, and the same uh, is true in each one, and the time period is pretty much the same, you know, I mean a few days for the desire, a few months for the ability. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the the place in New York that expounded expanded that information to show that actually what happens after two months of use is. Of alcohol, it's the luteinizing hormone of the pituitary gland that gets suppressed, uh, and uh, uh, this, uh, when that gets suppressed, then it it uh, it doesn't stimulate the testicles or the ovaries to produce uh, their endogenous male hormones. So then uh, uh, that's why it lasts for so long. So this is a a physical uh, thing, and it's got something to do. Uh, the same mechanism can be could be involved with the thyroid thing that you were talking about, although. Uh, I really haven't seen anything followed through uh, very much in this regard. the recovery from that i 've already talked about it takes a couple of months. It can take us of course a lot longer I mean you know i 'm sure this group knows that the half life of Valium uh, is an, uh, incredibly long in some people uh, much longer than the uh, two days that uh, Roche Laboratories is now willing to admit to after a considerable amount of pressures. Uh, uh, but Grinnell Fox in California claims it 's as long as the half life of Valium and some people as long as eight days and From my own experience with patients. I I can believe that uh, completely so if you're one of those people who metabolize some of these drugs very slowly uh, six months even a year would not be too unusual uh, to see the suppression of these hormones for that the question is
2: uh, the effect of if any of the uh, non orgasmic male and the effect of the on the Femininity of the female, and vice versa.
0: Let me see if I understand the question. Rephrase it. Are you saying uh, the bad feelings that come in the female when her husband or significant other becomes impotent, and vice versa? She
2: she fails to stimulate him. I think she loses her femininity.
0: She fails to stimulate him when he becomes impotent. I mean uh, I mean she physically fails too or psychologically? psychologically psychologically fails too. Okay, well, I would think that we basically are talking about the the whole field of resentments and hostility and low self-esteem that gets going here, uh, because if a male becomes impotent. Uh, I'm quite sure that he has a similar uh, reaction to the fema- that the female has when it comes to m- someday my prince will come. I think the female sees uh, when she becomes non-orgasmic, I'm sure it's easy for her to see, uh, it be- because she's been told, or it's able, able for- easy for her to believe that it's her spouse that's responsible because she was sort of raised that way. Well, I think when the female, when the male becomes impotent, he hasn't been raised that way, but he certainly, as a drinking alcoholic, is anxious to believe that if he had someone younger and or more beautiful or more skilled in their sexual uh, abilities, that he wouldn't have this problem. In other words, he's seeing her as the cause of his impotence, just like the female is seeing the, um, the uh, male as the cause of her non-orgasmic response, uh, even though uh, he hasn't been, the male hasn 't particularly uh, raised that way that 's more of a a uh, cop out uh, but it's it 's easy for him to see that uh, to believe that because indeed uh, because all i mean everybody knows that if you uh, if you have a uh, Uh, some stimulating literature or something, especially for males, they say, although I understand Playgirl is really selling good now, so I guess the uh, reverse is true. Um, uh, You have some stimulating literature or person, uh, you can overcome certain amounts of impotence. So I I think that... uh, uh, and this is the whole principle, of course, behind uh, males looking for somebody younger when they, to uh, marry and that when they get older and all that sort of thing. But uh, I think it basically boils down to two factors that you're talking about, or I see it anyhow. One is the low self-esteem of the male, uh, and the other is the hostility factors uh, towards that partner, uh, to, towards the female partner. We, uh, we talked a little uh, earlier in the, at lunchtime about something that never ever occurred to me before until I was sitting in a group uh, uh, confrontation at Brighton Hospital last week. One of the people there was the family, uh, our family counselor who was a female and who was an Al Anon member. And, and what happened was uh, the male was there and, uh, and he was, she was giving him permission to go home and feel equal with his non-alcoholic spouse. Uh, uh, and it never occurred to me before that that the that the male or the female for that matter wouldn't feel equal in a relationship uh, at home you know and i thought back in my uh, my own drinking time and i uh, and i completely agreed with her when she said it but because that's exactly the way i used to feel i felt when i walked in my house they say, a man's home is his castle. Well, it was anything but, like, but th- anything but that for me, because I walked in that house, I felt that she owned it, she controlled it, she ruled it, uh, and I was allowed to come in and sleep. Uh, uh, and so I was feeling uh, inferior. In the confines of that house i didn 't feel my kids respected me i didn 't feel that if any major decisions came up uh, to make if i uh, if i didn 't agree with what my wife said, uh, then uh, I was wrong and she was right, and which was most for the most part was right i mean she usually was of course, because my judgment was impaired, but nevertheless, I was feeling inferior, so I think this is what you're, uh, what I feel here when, uh, when and it 's just that that attitude is just magnified. By feeling, by being impotent, because if you feel impotent, not only you are you inferior in the social sense of that relationship, and the ability to discipline kids and so on. This is the castration complex you're talking about. I, I, I did talk about that in the uh, where where you live, but you got a certain image of what a father, a husband, and a male is. And if you 're not able to live up to that, either one because you 're impotent two, because nobody will listen to you and be disciplined by you, three uh, because you 're not supporting your family anymore, your wife may be out working or something like that, this whole bad feelings come in there and uh, and then when uh, as far as her he is not necessarily going to see that as alcohol but he's going to see her as hateful and, and uh, aggressive and, and so forth and therefore not loving enough if he loved if she loved him more uh, then he would be able to function more that's just another way of, of not admitting what the real problem is with the female of course uh, uh, the you, this, I, I think the picture would seem to be about the same. Uh, we t- talked at the break here about uh, low self-esteem is even even more devastating to the female. I mean, I think the female alcoholic really uh, needs to feel good about herself in order to have sex. And I think this probably all goes back to the virgin whore concept, too, on a subconscious level that she has to feel good about herself in order to enjoy uh, sex life, have a good sex life. And so... When she becomes non-orgasmic, uh, I suspect it's got something to do with more of the, the bad feelings. And and, uh, uh, the, and she, of course, has got permission to blame her spouse in this regard. And the hostility factor, I'm sure, is functioning there. Is this what you had in mind? I would agree. Whether they're an alcoholic or not... Right. Yeah, okay, I agree with that. And uh, and if the fem- if the male, that's one of the big hang-ups with well, yeah, you. I see what your point is now. And, and the same thing is true. Uh, if the female becomes non-orgasmic, the male is uh, this is a hang-up with him because he's not much of a man if he can't. Uh, right. And that's uh, this, of course. Uh, get, then we get right down to the uh, fear of performance again, and and the over and the ways to overcome fear of performance. Incidentally, we could talk about that for a second uh, uh, now because. Um, the way to overcome fear of performance, of course, according to Masters and Johnson's, uh, is to take the emphasis off of performance and put it on pleasure. Uh, and uh, uh, they do this, of course, with the, what's called the sensate focus uh, down at Masters and Johnson's. And if you, uh, this morning I talked about that continuum that we had where our sex life starts with lust and goes on to physical intimacy that happens at the time uh, you surrender your virginity, male or female, which is a tremendous opportunity to get to know somebody, of course, and that's probably why God invented it that way in the first place, until you get to the type of emotional intimacy that comes with years of marriage and alcohol of course, reverses this thing down to this lustful stage, and uh, it only it occurs not only with alcoholism, but occurs with all kinds of rela- uh, all kinds of relationships, uh, uh, so that people have an inability to communicate. And one of the things we talked about at uh, lunchtime was the fact that the big problem with sexual dysfunction, when you really boil it down to the lowest common denominator, comes down to the problem of communication. If you can communicate with your spouse, you can get over your sexual dysfunction. That's basically what it boils down to, and sharing some of the physical aspects and blaming alcohol is a very real uh, beginning as far as the communication but sometimes it takes uh, more than that and taking the emphasis off of performance and putting it on uh, pleasure uh, becomes extremely important and that's what basically Masters and Johnson's theory is and uh, alcohol reverses this process and makes your sex life down to this lustful stage. At least uh, in a lot of cases, become when you recover from alcoholism, you've lost the ability to communicate to such an extent that you're at this physical intimacy stage at least. And how are you going to get from this physical intimacy stage that, uh, fortunately, because sex is such a great thing... Uh, we almost invariably at least can start there again. I mean, that's where our emotional involvement started usually when we got married, say, uh, and or whenever you had that relationship start, and then it grew from there. Well, fortunately, uh, for the most of us, we still have the, ab- or we'll get back the ab- ability to have sex, and that puts you back at this stage, and then you've got to start growing again. Well, the way you grow is, of course, uh, through intimate relationships and communicating, and most of us alcoholics have... Uh, instead of growing have learned to play games and of course if you read that those books like I'm okay you're okay and games alcoholics play and games people play you realize that that's what started in here instead of growing and getting to know each other better and better and having a better a more intimate emotional relationship we started playing games like cops and robbers and look what you made me do and and uh uh, games like uh, Rapole and, and various games as described in those books. Well, what when we stop drinking, uh, we, we have a tendency to continue playing those games even though we're sober. And if we play those games, we're going to continue to uh, 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 lack in growth and emotional growth and our relationship will not become of that high order that it otherwise would. And uh, Masters and Johnsons uh, suggest that you overcome this by what's called sensate focus and sensate focus is a way of getting into this continuum right at this point of physical intimacy here and sensate focus if you were to go down to Masters and Johnsons or read their book um, The Pleasure Bond uh, is a way of taking the emphasis off of performance uh, and putting it on pleasure. And if you were to pay your 1500 or whatever it is down at Masters and Johnson's, uh, they would send you over to the Chase Park Plaza Hotel after doing a complete physical and explaining the physical aspects of, of uh, sexual uh, problems, including who inserts the penis. They would tell you all these important things. Uh, and then they would go, you would go over to Chase Park Plaza, and they tell you to both take your clothes off at least twice a day and get into bed, and with the following instructions. Uh, uh, you don't touch the male or the female genitalia. You don't touch the female breast or any other erogenous zone, such as the rectum and so forth. You don't have intercourse for three days, and you're instructed to, uh, uh, for the male to use the female's body for his pleasure, notice that, he uses a female's body for his pleasure, not her pleasure, and her only job is to tell him what is uncomfortable to her psychologically or physically. Then it becomes her turn, and uh, she her uh, uh, and she is to use the male 's body for her pleasure, not his pleasure, uh, and her, his only job is to tell uh, her what is uncomfortable to him psychologically and physically. This brings out the emphasis of pleasure, and you find out that there is a beauty in a relationship without orgasm, without ejaculation, without uh, anything like that. This is something an awful lot of females i 've uh, Uh, had the pleasure to talk to in the last few years Uh, have known for a long time that males are harder to teach, that there is a, a pleasure in a relationship that does not involve orgasm or ejaculation. Uh, This is what Masters and Johnson teaches you to do. Take the emphasis off of performance, put it on pleasure, and sex is something that's going to happen uh, eventually. And it's it's only because of this fear of performance that it keeps it from happening. And this allows these people to start communicating. In other words, the book by Alex Comfort on Joy of Sex and more of the Joy of Sex does the same thing. It gives the people the ability to communicate uh, verb uh, with their hands and so forth rather than verbally. Uh, so this is uh, important. When I uh, talk to people on a one-to-one basis about this, invariably, I say, no, three days in bed uh, naked with no sex. The male will almost invariably raise his eyebrows and say, wow, how are you going to t- uh, tolerate all that stimulation? I always say, well, that's, that's a typical male attitude there's some myth going on around here that around this country that says when a male goes on to have an erection if he doesn't go on to ejaculation something horrible is going to happen like grain damage or something like that you know and, and uh, uh, the, the actual fact is this doesn't happen of course and, uh, and the fact that they're worrying about that erection uh, it proves the point I mean uh, the fact that uh, this thing uh, by taking the emphasis off of performance and putting it on Pleasure is the, uh, the uh, whole mechanism for communication and recovery it what it boils down to again is it's a matter of communication uh, the, I think there you take uh, you take a couple who are able to communicate on an honest level uh, a total honest level uh, then I think you've got someone who will not have much of a problem with their sex life uh, uh, one of the, uh, the the profile of, of a recovering uh, alcoholic uh, as far as uh, George Mann is concerned of Minneapolis, Minnesota is somebody, number one, who is abstinent number two, someone who has a good feeling about himself, number three, someone who has a loving relationship with another individual, Some, number four, someone who has a, a contact with his higher power, and number five, someone who has extreme honesty a uh, high level of honesty with the ability to confront and be confronted by their, uh, by their partner, and I think if you get those five qualities of in that profile I think uh, sexual dysfunction uh, will disappear. Any other questions? Let's see, the next uh, one was functional dysfunction uh, which I just sort of more or less mentioned in fear of performance and the sensate focus. uh, Last one is the hostility factor. Somebody asked me during the break uh, about the uh, these two trees I had uh, on the board, and they, if you had the lead, you didn't have time to wait and ask the question, so I can r- sort of explain uh, in a little more, more detail uh, what I mean by those two trees. If you recall, I, uh, overcoming hostility uh, is to form a perfect marriage, according to Peter Martin, which is like two trees able to stand on their own feet side by side Uh, and the two together being more protection for the two people underneath those trees uh, than either one standing alone. And uh, she wanted to know in more detail what that meant. And basically what it means is a perfect marriage is composed of two people who, uh, and they have three qualities. One, they are individually independent, they are mutually dependent, uh, and they are—they re- uh, have a reciprocal obligation, and that's what basically this, uh, these two uh, trees represent. Uh, either one of those trees could stand alone on either side of the board, and they could survive. But the two together. Uh, overlapping like this is like like the bows of a, 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 t- a trees on either side of a the street. They overlap in the middle of the street, and anybody walking down the street gets protected from the sun and the rain and so forth underneath those trees. And they get more protection than uh, if there was just one tree on either uh, on either side. So they are they have a, a mutual dependence. Uh, in other words, you don't want what you don't want uh, is one tree leaning on one tree. or or worse yet, uh, one tree leaning away from the other tree. I used to, when I used to give this talk uh, uh, up till a few months ago, I used to say it doesn't matter whether one tree is dominant and one is recessive, whether one is tall and one is short, but I changed my mind about that. uh, and I think that feelings of equality are essential for a good relationship, and that's why I, brought, I bring in this women's liberation thing. I, don't, I think that for a relationship to be uh, real and, and to grow and to communicate, there has to be a feeling of equality. And uh, and I didn't really realize that so much as uh, as the other day when, when Stephanie brought up that fact that you that giving this male the permission to be go home, go home and be equal uh, and uh, so uh, when she said that and I looked at this man. Uh, I realized how important a feeling of equality was, and I have to uh, plead a little chauvinistic attitude uh, when I—it uh, was my attitude I had last year—and not realizing that I—I I, I didn't mention the the need for equality before because I didn't see it as uh, as as important as I did when I was sitting in that room with that uh, man, and I realized that that was equality that, that need for equality is important and I apologize to all the females that I may have talked to, uh, up, to uh, up to the time that I changed that because I really think that equality is extremely important but what you don't want is one tree leaning on one tree and one tree leaning away and then in addition to that you have to have a mutual commitment or a reciprocal obligation if you will to stay there and not move you know, they have to uh, you have to that tree this tree's got to be able to depend with reasonable certainty that that tree's going to be there tomorrow uh, uh, or the relationship, of course, will deteriorate. Any questions?
1: The
0: question is, does
2: alcoholism and alcohol have any effect on uh, fertility, particularly as, as far as the sperm count is concerned?
0: Yes, it does. Uh, The the, uh, sperm count does go down with alcoholism, uh, and with the drop of male hormone level, there is also a rebound uh, uh, increase in sperm count with stopping drinking. Uh, It's usually not a significant one as far as uh, 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 fertility uh, uh, is concerned unless the count is already down because the number of sperm uh, that it drops is, you know, it drops like 250,000, 250 million to uh, 200 or something like this. And it's usually not significant, although we have had, in, uh, in the last few years at Brighton where this subject has come up, we've had two people who uh, had problems uh, uh, impregnating two men who had problems impregnating their spouses. That where we did get sperm counts on them, they were down, and there was a, uh, and they were down significantly. And they, they have since both of them uh, uh, had children. But it's uh, usually not as a rule. Uh, it, but there's the, the sparsity, there's a lot of sparsity of information here, and, and I was just reading something the other day about somebody doing some more work in this field, but uh, it definitely uh, has a, a depressing effect on this. I have
2: to give Dr. Moran a standing ovation for his uh, <laughs> workshop this afternoon. Give you a little idea of how much we appreciate your being here, Dr. Marin.